0: CHAPTER 14 OF THE BROKEN ROSARY BY GRACE AND HAROLD JOHNSON This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Fourteen. The wind blew wisps of hair against Mary's face as she and Dan raced through the rain to his car. Neither stood on ceremony. They were like two firemen off to a fire. Dan stepped on the starter and the motor set up an expectant purr. As the car slipped away into the darkness, headlights dancing on the wet pavement, Dan said— Guess my public relations job at police headquarters paid off. How's that? A year ago no one down there would have bothered to call the dispatch office to get in touch with me. There's been a complete changeover in their way of thinking, and I'd like to think it's the pressure I put on them. It was sure swell of the desk sergeant to call Partridge. Yes, it was. Believe me, I put on a promotion job down there. I showed them how there might be times when the police would need the dispatch, just as badly as the paper needs the police on stories like this. It worked this time, anyway, Dan, Mary said. Suddenly, more from instinct than definable thought, she realized her tenseness. This is the kind of newspaper work I really go for. It's exhilarating. Yes, Dan agreed, but always at someone's expense, in this case, Sam Brighton's. Mary felt the deflation set in. Yes, I know. They rode in silence, both deep in thought. The rain slackened and the wind increased its tree whipping blasts. Occasionally the moon peeked out from behind racing clouds. Several moments later, Dan said with a great depth of feeling Whoever shot Sam will certainly regret it. You just don't kill cops or newspaper reporters and get away with it. Other citizens, maybe yes, but cops and reporters, no. The hunt goes on and never stops. Cops and reporters have long memories, they never forget. Mary thought she had never seen Dan quite so stirred up. She glanced at the speedometer. "'Hadn't you better slow down?' Dan looked at the dashboard and let out a long drawn-out. "Wow!" Then he watched the needle fall back to thirty-five miles per hour. "'These things sure run away with the guy,' he said. Mary laughed softly. "'Especially when you press the accelerator down to the floorboards. You sure are keyed up on this one, Dan.' He didn't say anything for a moment, but his jaw was set hard. Sam Brighton was a swell guy. Guess maybe you had something, honey, when you said a little while ago that the cops needed help in solving these two murders. He gave Mary a quick glance and a grin. Always right, aren't you, pal? Well, not always, Mary said slowly, but I'm batting pretty good this time. The moon had disappeared and the rain was pelting down again when Dan parked his car at the curb in front of the Brighton home directly behind a Buick, with a doctor's identification tag attached to the license plate. He helped Mary out, and they ran, hand in hand, up the long driveway, past an ambulance and a police cruiser, to the house which stood deep in the lot. The house was large and old, with bay windows pushing out in front, and on either side of the heavily ornate porch. Policeman Toller taller stood deep within the shadows on the porch, away from the slanting rain. When he recognized Dan and Mary in the glowing rays from his flashlight— he called Go round to the back door, Dan. Thanks, taller, Dan yelled over his shoulder. The two reporters entered the enclosed back porch, then stepped into the kitchen through the open door. Oh, Mary exclaimed, taken by surprise at the modern interior. For a moment she stood still, taking in the details. Here, she thought, Sam Brighton has shown his love for his mother. The room was a page from a home decorator's file. Wilkes stood in a corner of the room, talking in a low voice to a uniformed policeman. When he stopped to listen to the policeman's reply, Mary noted that his mouth was a thin, tight line, and his face had a gray tinge. She saw a pulse move in his throat, a sign of fatigue she had come to recognize in some people. She wondered if Wilkes had slept any since Wally Brighton's murder. He looked like a man too weary to think or act. When Dan's eyes questioned him, Wilkes made a slight gesture toward the front of the house, Before Dan had taken three steps in that direction, Wilkes put up his hand. Don't go in yet, Dan. Dr. Brown is in there with Sam. Words lifted in Dan's throat, and he let his lips say them as his mind raced hopefully. He isn't dead, then? No. He's unconscious, though. The bullet entered the temporal region of the skull and went out the opposite side. It's very serious, but Doc Brown says he has a slight chance of pulling through. "'Any idea who shot him?' Dan asked. For a moment, the detective looked at Dan with unseeing eyes. Then he blinked away the blankness of his stare. "'No, I don't have the slightest idea who would want to kill Sam. I didn't think he had an enemy in town.' "'Maybe it was the same one who killed his brother,' Mary said. Wilkes nodded as if he had scarcely heard her. Then he lowered himself into the nearest chair. He sat silently and dispiritedly for a long moment before he looked up to Dan. I suppose you want a few facts. Well, here's what we know for all we've got so far. Sam was sitting in the living room talking to his mother and his Aunt Laura. They'd just come back from the funeral home. His back was to the bay window, through which the shot was fired. Wilkes paused, as if it was an effort to talk. Someone standing outside the window shot at him from a distance of about eight feet. We got plaster casts of his two footprints. Big man did the shooting, probably. Looks to me like he wore a twelve-double-E shoe. We'll find out for certain later. As soon as Dr. Brown gets Sam to the hospital, we'll get the bullet out of the door casing. Can't hammer and saw now make a lot of noise." "'How's his mother taking it?' Mary asked. "'Pretty good, considering,' Wilkes replied. "'She's upstairs with her sister now. She's sure had it rough.' Wilkes stopped for a minute and then went on, his voice firm. "'I've got men out scouring the neighborhood to find out if anyone saw a stranger around or a strange car parked nearby. My guess is the getaway car was left at the end of the alleyway, behind the Alcroft Foundry and Machine Co. That way the guy who shot Sam could steal up the dark alley, go through the backyard, fire the shot, and leave by the same way he came. He sure picked a night when there'd be very few people on the streets.' "'How about it, Chief?' Dan asked. Do you still think Wally committed suicide? Wilkes worked his lips nervously for a moment. In view of the attempt on Sam's life, I'll guess we'll have to rule that out. Then you think the person who killed Wally is the one who shot Sam? Mary asked. Could be, Wilkes said wearily. He passed his hand over his forehead three or four times, then added, What I can't figure is why anyone would want to kill Sam. Wally, yes. He had plenty of enemies, but not Sam. Maybe Mr. Brighton had discovered who killed his brother, Mary said. That's possible, Mary, but not very likely. If he had, he'd have told me, and he wouldn't have been sitting here at home. I know Sam too well for that. We'd have had the person arrested by now. But maybe Sam was on the right track when he thought there was some connection between Wally's murder and the old sheriff, Duffield, Dan said. Maybe that's why someone took a shot at him, to silence him, before he could push it any more. Maybe this whole case should be worked from that angle. There was a defensive tone in Wilkes' voice as he said sharply, We're working on it from every angle, O'Hara. I know what Sam thought. He told me. I've talked on the phone with the sheriff down in Harlem, Missouri, four times in the past two days. He's investigated anything that could possibly concern Duffield, and he says nothing of value cropped up. He agrees with me that there is no possible connection between the two murders. Dan choked back the impulse to object. He wanted to ask how Wilkes was sure the sheriff down in Harlow had really made a thorough investigation of Duffield's past, but he knew nothing would be gained by arguing the point. Dan knew that Wilkes depended on his carefully ordered memory of past events to solve this case, just as it had aided him at other times. He also knew that Wilkes was not disturbed by overimaginative whirlwinds. He would plod along, working endless hours, until some tangible clue appeared. Mary bit her lip as Dan and Wilkes talked. She knew Dan didn't agree with the chief, and she was wondering why he didn't press his objection harder. Finally, unable to keep quiet any longer, she said softly, But, Mr. Wilkes, don't you think that perhaps the person who shot Sam wanted to keep him from going to Missouri to investigate? He told us he was planning to go. Wilkes' eyes became animated for a second, and then he blinked them, as if trying to rid his mind of the thought. "'Mary may have a point, Wilkes,' Dan said quickly. "'Sam knew something that was dangerous to the guilty party. That's certain, or he wouldn't have been shot.' Before Wilkes could reaffirm his disbelief in any tie-up of the two cases, there was the sound of movement beyond the closed door, leading to the dining-room. All eyes turned in that direction. Suddenly the door was jerked open, and Dr. Brown came into the kitchen— The doctor was a short, bald, middle-aged man of brisk movement. A tiny blonde mustache twitched on his upper lip as he nodded toward Dan and Mary. Looking at Wilkes, he said, You may go in now. I'm through in there. They're taking Sam to the hospital. Is he going to live? Wilkes asked. He's got a fighting chance. His pulse and respiration are normal, and that's usually a good sign. Is he still unconscious? Dan asked. Yes. Yes. "'How long do you suppose he'll be out?' Wilkes asked. The doctor pursed his lips. "'That's hard to say. Maybe hours, maybe days. Have to wait and see. Depends on how much damage is done in the temporal region.' He turned quickly, walked through the dining room, and disappeared. Dan took Mary by the arm. "'Let's go in and have a look.' Wilkes followed them. Unlike the kitchen with its modern decor, the dining room and living room were of no particular period. Scattered through the two rooms were comparatively new pieces of furniture, bought to replace those that had worn out, but an aura of the past predominated in the two rooms. Dan's roving eye took in the scene. For a short time he stood quietly watching, listening, judging. Wilkes pointed to a large, overstuffed chair. That's where Sam was sitting. He walked over to the doorway leading to the front hall. Pointing to a small hole in the casing, he said, Here's where the bullet went in we'll get busy now and take it out. Dan moved over toward the window. If it wasn't so stuffy and hot, the assailant wouldn't have had such an easy time, Dan said, as he pointed to the window which was raised about a foot. The guy had easy work shooting through the window screen. Wilkes nodded. That's right, Dan. A policeman entered the front hall, water dripping from his glistening black raincoat. His glance, filled with curiosity, swept the interior of the hall and the living room beyond before he said. The watchman over at the Alcroft Foundry and Machine Company said he saw a car pull out of the alley and turn north just about the time Sam was shot. He said it was a two-tone job, light blue body and cream-colored top. Maybe a Ford. He's not sure. Says all cars look alike to him. But he's pretty sure there were two men in the car. Did he get the license number? Wilkes asked. No, he said he tried, but the rear plate, which was the only one he saw, was too muddy to make out. It was an Ohio license, though. He's sure of that. Wilkes rubbed his chin with his knuckles. He said there were two men in the car? That's what he thought, Chief. He said it looked like there were two men in the car when they passed under the streetlight at the corner. He couldn't swear to it, though. Anyone else see the car? The policeman shook his head. Not many people out and around down here on a night like this. It's pretty deserted. Wilkes gave an impatient look. I know it's raining, but people do go out in the rain. Get back out there and rustle up somebody else who saw that car. The policeman shook his head again. It'll take some doing, Chief. Okay, but do it, Wilkes replied. As the policeman turned to go, Wilkes said, Give it all you've got. Remember, this is for Sam. I know. Maybe we can do as much for you some day, Wilkes added. I hope not, the officer replied, almost bumping into Detective Davis as he passed through the door. Anger was evident in Davis's face and every movement of his large body as he strode into the room. Wilkes eyed him bleakly. Well? Nothing, absolutely nothing, Davis growled. i covered this section up and down, and no one has seen a thing that's of any help. When Wilkes started to tell what the watchman of the Alcroft plant had seen, Davis interrupted with a wave of his hand. I talked with that guy, too. He's a nitwit. All he wants is publicity and a chance to prove he's wide awake and on the job. Why, he didn't even see the car enter the alley, and he didn't see if it was parked anywhere in the vicinity. All he saw, so he told me, was a car drive away, with maybe one guy, maybe two in it. He doesn't know for sure. Could have been anyone driving it. Wilkes looked at Davis, his expression grim. We've had far less to go on other times, Davis, and have come out on top. We've got to start looking for a man with good-sized feet, about twelve double E, a man who was driving a car with a blue body and cream-colored top. Davis's jaw muscle bulged. Tipolo Is his car that color? Wilkes asked. His caddy is all blue, Davis replied, but he's got another car that he doesn't use very much. It's a blue-green job with a light top, a Pontiac, I think, and he sure got the big feet. We can start with him, Wilkes said as he moved toward the door. Let's find him. We'll leave Toller here. By the time we get back, the gun sharks will have had time to find the bullet and maybe run a test on it to see if it was fired from the same revolver Duffield was shot with. As the two detectives left the room, Mary looked at Dan and wondered what was on his mind. She knew from the way he held down the corners of his mouth that whatever it was would soon break out into swift, decided action. Without a word, Dan stepped over to the table below the stair landing in the hallway and picked up the telephone. After a short conversation, too low for Mary to hear, he cradled the phone and turned to her. I can get a plane for St. Louis at 8.25 a.m. That will get me there around noon. I could easily be in Harlow by late afternoon. A couple days down... The urgent way her voice cut in on his made Dan look at her sharply. "'Don't you mention to anyone that you're going down there, or you might get killed too,' she said. Dan forced a light laugh. "'Don't worry. I haven't even gone yet. I have to get an okay from either Dove or Falls. I'll tackle Dove tomorrow around 7.30. He's on the early shift this week, and he's easier to talk to than Falls.' Mary wrinkled her nose. "'You can say that again.' Falls can be most difficult, I know, but please, Dan, don't go around telling people you're thinking of going down there. I don't want a dead fiance. Dan squeezed her arm and steered her toward the door. Don't talk. That's good advice, young lady, he said as his mind raced back over the conversations of the past two days, conversations in which he had been a party with Sam Brighton. Just who could have known that Sam planned to go to Missouri? End of Chapter Fourteen.